All right, I'm back here again with um, Roger Koops, a retired scientist living in Japan. Um, we've had you on the show a few other times to talk about masks, to talk about vaccine development. And this time I really just wanted to ask you about your experience uh, because you were in a position where you had to deal with uh, the FDA and I guess the CDC as well. Um, you know, what, uh, I think you've got a lot of insights to, to share with us. What, what exactly, when you were, when you were working in the industry, what exactly did you do with the FDA? So my interactions with the FDA were uh, probably the majority of actions or interactions with the FDA were dealing with um, filings and inspections. So um, as a QA person, and mo most of that occurred when I was QA. Um, so the, the process goes, you know, when you want to try to market a drug, you do the clinical trials, you do all the work, and then you file um, in with a new drug, it's uh, an NDA, a new drug application with the FDA. And they review it. Um, they may ask questions. And at some point in time, they will inspect not only your facility, but if you use contractors for any part of the work, they will inspect those facilities. So as when I was director of QA, I was responsible for hosting the FDA. So I had to deal face-to-face -face with FDA inspectors um, several times during, during my career. So that's kind of the primary effort was dealing around the, the filings. Uh, before I got into QA, I actually had quite a bit of interaction with the FDA because during inspections, uh, oftentimes, you know, the technical people go in and answer questions from the inspectors. So as a development chemist, um, I sometimes was called in to answer some questions that the inspectors maybe had. Uh, so I had <clears throat> those kinds of interactions. Um, at the same time, when I was a development chemist, I was also working on a controlled substance. So I also had the same interactions with the DEA, um, which is a completely different experience than dealing with the FDA. <laughs> <laughs> so um, FDA people don't carry guns. DEA people do. <laughs> Even when they're coming to your lab. Even when they come, yes, they they're, they all have Jeez. their, their sidearm. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's... It, it was a quite a different, and they, they look at things from a different perspective. They're not looking for compliance or safety. They're looking at, you know, are you keeping control of your controlled substance? So it's, it's, a, you right. know, it's, a, it's a more of a law enforcement issue than a, than a other type of regulatory issue. Yeah. So, so that's quite a bit of the, of the interaction with the, with the FDA, dealing around those kinds of um, filings and inspections, I would say probably about 90%. But there are also interactions with, um, for example, when you submit uh, uh, an application, you, you sometimes have interactions with the reviewers. The FDA gives the application to a, a pertinent reviewer, a chemi chemical reviewer or a clinical reviewer, whoever might be needing to look at it. So you sometimes are dealing with, with um, those interactions as well. So the FDA is pretty set forward, um, but, Later, when I was working at the vaccine company of Action, of course, that was a part of a broader program. Um, and I don't know if you've heard of the term BARDA, uh, B-A-R-D-A. They're, so. a, they're a group, <laughs> another bureaucracy, actually, that was set up um, during the George W. Bush 
administration early on after 9-11, and their function was to kind of coordinate um, the biodefense thing between all of the other uh, agencies. So it was just essentially okay. another bureaucracy that's got stuck into the mess of things. So when we would have these meetings, um, you know, you had people from BARDA, you had FDA people, um, sometimes, sometimes you'd have CDC people, but almost always you would have, you know, uh, NIH, NAIAD people there. Uh, so you'd have various people from different branches of the, that side of the government. And all of these branches, BARDA, FDA, um, CDC, they all report to the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, which is, you know, a branch of the, you know, it's an executive function. So they report into the White House, essentially. Yeah. So there's a secretary of DHHS. Um, so, of course, you had DHHS members also in these meetings. So it, you, when you get involved in these kinds of things, you actually see the, you know, the huge web of government politics that, occurs in all of these organizations and so I certainly had a lot of you know experience dealing dealing with that and seeing how these fun organizations function within each other and it's it's kind of mind-boggling um, because it's not very efficient and <laughs> not a whole lot gets surprising <clears throat> yeah it's it's it, it's like a log jam as one might, might expect in any government type of thing so um, the CDC was a little bit different. Aside from being in these meetings, um, I had the opportunity at one point because the CDC was developing a test, laboratory test, for um, the anthrax vaccine. Um, I had an opportunity as part of the responsibility of QA to go, actually go and, and audit CDC to see if they were essentially developing these tests according to the proper FDA guidelines in terms of, you know, uh, validation, test validation. Uh, so I actually spent a day inside the CDC in Atlanta um, auditing their things. And the first thing I found out in auditing the CDC is that the government doesn't follow their own rules. Mm -hmm. um, they knew nothing about validation. Wow. It was... It was it was, you know, I that was 50, it was 15 years ago, but I have seen nothing to date that has gotten me to believe that that has changed at all. Um, I had uh, <laughs> an interesting spirit experience with the CDC audit, and that one of the scientists who had developed the test method, I uh, was interviewing him, and I looked at the test methodology and was looking at the data and stuff, and I asked him, I said, "So, where's the validation?" data on this. How did you validate this? And he said, well, it's validated. And I said, well, yeah, but how did you do it? Where's the data? What, you know, what protocol did you use? You know, what, what kind of, and when you do a validation on a test, you look at specificity, um, you know, you look at the various parameters, limit of detections. I mean, there's, there's a kind of a whole standard array of things that you test and you stress. So you, you look to see, can this test method deliver consistently what you're doing. He had none of that. So he leaves there and he comes back with an email from some scientist at the FDA, or maybe it was NIH, I don't even remember, that said that, yeah, this test may be validatable, 
And he said, here, it's validated. I said, that's not validation. <laughs> I said, that's an email from somebody saying that it's validatable. You know, you have to, you have to do the work. And he got red faced, beat red faced and started. I mean, he, he just, he stormed out of the room. He ended the interview. Wow. And the CDC host that was with me um, was kind of stunned by this too, but CDC doesn't often get, I don't think audited. So this was kind of like a new experience. So just, just to clarify, who were you auditing it on behalf of? Was this for the FDA or who was, who had, it was for our company, Vaxgen, because I didn't really, so a company, I didn't realize that it, that it worked that way. Yeah. Well, because we were developing the, the anthrax vaccine. And so what we were planning to do was to utilize the test methodology from the CDC. Oh, okay. So you needed to so, check it out for yourself. So we, we needed, you know, we needed to, to verify that this was a, a, you know, a viable test method. And we were responsible for that. The CDC was not, the CDC could have been considered like a contractor, okay. subcontractor for, for vaccine. So you know, since we got the test from them. And, and this was a it, test to find out whether anthrax was present, whether someone had been in, infected by anthrax or. Yeah, no, this was, this was a, like a, um, uh, this was like a laboratory test to determine the, essentially to quantify the, the, the level of, in the vaccine itself. So. Oh, okay. Was, in the vaccine. Okay. Yeah. So okay. It, it was, it was a pretty important test. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. But they, you know, they had no idea what validation meant. Absolutely. Wow. And, and when I pressed for data information, I, and I was, you know, as a auditor, I sometimes got into a little bit of debates with, with, with people and during inspections, I was not always well liked, but, you know, I always tried to like calmly lay out, you know, well, you need, you know, you need to know your limit of detection. You need to do specificity. You need to do stress testing. Um, you know, you, you have to do these things. And, this person, I mean, he just, I mean, literally purple faced, boom. Out wow. He never answered. It, it was gone, you know. And the, the, <laughs> later, the, the CDC person that was with me, who was hosting me, said, uh, you know, I'm really sorry for that. Um, they finally, I guess, if I remember correctly, towards the end of the, the audit, he came, they brought him back in and he was slightly less eruptive at that <laughs> point. But, um, and he more or less apologized <laughs> and said, well, I'll look into it. And then he left again. So kind of, that's kind of how it ended. But, you know, I came away from there and seeing the operation, you know, it wasn't the only thing I was looking at. I was looking at their laboratory, so a lot of their procedures. Um, you know, they, they, they didn't operate in the same realm as what the industry, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry is required to operate in. Um, and they really didn't have those concepts. Some of it, so there, and to be to be a little bit fair, um, and CDC is like any organization, government or private. There are plenty of good people who you know work hard and try to do the right thing, um, but there's a heavy, heavy bureaucracy in government agencies, and this the same can be said for the FDA. I mean, there were plenty of good people I've encountered in the FDA. Uh, who knew what they're doing, work hard, you know, very, very good people, but they're bogged down by this government bureaucracy that, you know, it, it's sometimes impossible to, to rise the, the cream to the top. 
Um, the good people tend to put in a couple of years, get, you know, on their resume that they were at FDA or CDC, and then they go out and they get a, a job in industry. Um, so the good people tend to go through the revolving door. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's the ones who kind of are the, the, you know, career, I don't know how to put it, but the people who know how to funnel their career down a path and live off of the government for, you know, 20 or 30 years, those are the ones that tend to survive. Wow. Um, so when this all, when COVID thing began last year, I, I had a small Facebook crowd, which and I've actually given up on Facebook. I don't, I don't go on. Did, you, did you, did you get banned? Did your account get, get uh, people tried to share or... my, my account did not, but people tried to share some of the things I was writing and, and that did get blocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was still pretty early on. Um, and this was before I actually submitted my first essay to AIER. So very early on in, in March, when, when the WHO declared a pandemic and, you know, all the lockdowns started, I went on to Facebook and my, my following was small. It's friends and family. I, I don't like, I'm not a social media person. I don't, you know, need hundreds of people following me. It's a very kind of limited group. And I told them, I said, look, it's not that bad. <laughs> I said, it's not that bad. Don't, don't buy into the panic. And I said, number two is don't listen to the CDC. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't listen to the CDC. And I said, at that time, I said, the best thing that you can get from the CDC is maybe look at the numbers. Um, you know, they're, mm-hmm. in terms of a clearinghouse for data and information concerning what's happening, you know, in, in infectious disease, you know, that's really the only thing that they can really do with any decency. But I said, don't, you know, nothing else should you trust. Well, I had no sooner posted that than like, maybe I think it was like two weeks later, the CDC went out and said, oh, everybody should start sewing their own cloth masks. Right. You know, right. and I'm like, and I went back on and said, this is ridiculous, people. <laughs> you know, so I, and I, I went. I was following at that time. I went to the European CDC, um, mm-hmm. and I told people, if you want to follow some health organization um, that's a you know bureaucratic organization, European CDC is probably better than the U.S. CDC and probably better than WHO. And the reason I said that was because at least the European CDC is a conglomerate of different governments. I mean, they're, mm. they're controlled by the EU, um, which doesn't play necessarily to any particular government. There's, it's kind of spread across the board. So you tend to get, you know, a, I think a little bit more unbiased information from the Europe CDC. Yeah. So I was well, pushing people follow that. There's there's also a perception, um, and maybe you can speak to this, but the the European version of the FDA as well. Um, so there have been some comparisons made between um, sort of the results that that the FDA here produces and the results that you get from the the FDA in Europe, the European version, and it seems to have a lot less power than the FDA here in the U.S. Do you, do you know anything about that? Well, yeah, the 
Well, first of all, there's a slightly, they follow a different uh, regulatory paradigm in, in Europe. Um, so the US FDA you know, has its own code of footed regulations, um, the CFRs. Uh, and the, I, the US FDA is recognized pretty much worldwide as being the strictest, you know, in terms of all of the requirements that you have to do in terms of meeting, you know, pharmaceuticals or biologics, uh, clinical trials and so forth. They, they've always had that reputation. Um, Europe has, a, you know, a different set of standards and regulations by which they they govern and that can you know be a problem I, I, when i was in qa some of the companies that i w- was director of um, we had contractors in europe um, before i went to action i was director of qa at a smaller company and we were contracting with a manufacturing company in the netherlands who was making our active ingredient so it was a chemical manufacturing um, facility that was making the, the active ingredient and they're operating under the European standard, which was not as strict as the U S standard. So when I would go to inspect them and audit them, um, you know, didn't meet the U S standard. So I was always kind of doing this battle, like, well, you know, if, if you're going to, if we submit this, you're going to be inspected by the FDA and they're not going to like what you're doing here. And mm. You know, but that's a p- small part of their business, and they're mostly working with the European FDA, the European equivalent of the FDA. Um, and I, it, so, it, it, it there is a, a level of difference between the two. Yeah, and do you think, just in your own judgment of of what those standards are and the end result that comes out, do you think that the the lower standards in Europe? caused problems other other than having to interface with the US FDA do you think do you think that the higher standards of the FDA are necessary or is it just more part of the bureaucracy uh, I have never seen or experienced any incidents whereby you could point to a lower standard in Europe as being a responsible for um, you know, any problem that maybe would have been avoided with a higher standard in the U.S. I, mm-hmm. I guess that's the best way I can put it. Okay. The, the problems are, you know, usually are not that frequent, and they tend to be in, inherent in whatever process you're, you're dealing with, whether, it, you know, be a chemical process or packaging, um, formulation. Uh, these are, tend to be more of a, a of scientific problems, and you know all the regulations in the world aren't necessarily going to solve the problem. Um, so it, it's I've just never seen you know anything that jumped out as well. That's because you know Europe has weaker standards than the U.S., so they have this problem. I've never seen anything like that. So. Okay. Um, that's, I think that's relatively relatively rare. I mean, just because the U.S. has stricter standards, I have seen problems in the U.S. I mean, companies, if you go to the FDA's, they have a site where you can look up you know, actions, warning letters, um, and you will see uh, <laughs> a pretty, you know, a consistent amount of actions, regulatory actions taken against companies. And some companies have, you know, had... Back when I was working, uh, sharing plow, 
essentially got almost put got put out of business because of their um, they they were they had many problems with with some of their products and their products got put on hold, uh, pulled off the market, and um, so it, the, you know the, it's no guarantee. It, it's the regulations are there, but it's really the company's own environment that is going to make or break you know how things are done. Um, that's my opinion. I, I just never seen you know. Mm-hmm. That. Mm-hmm anything that you could point to a regulatory difference as, as being a cause of a problem. Right. Right. Um, and I've, I've, I've performed in my career. I've, I used to keep a tally, um, but I've performed over 150 audits during oh, my wow. career. So I, I'm pretty well experienced at going into places from all over the world. Wow. Do you think there's a difference in terms of, um, again, this is sort of my, my perception is that, it seems to me that the regulatory structure in the U.S. is more influenced by or connected to the pharmaceutical industry itself than elsewhere in the world. Is that? Do you think that's true? What do you mean by connected? You mean influenced by the pharmaceutical? Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's really so much the case because if it were, there would be less regulation. Um, I think the pharmaceutical industry feels quite overburdened by uh, the FDA regulations uh, across the board. So I, I don't, I don't think that's true. I, I guess um, what I mean by that is I, I see examples of, for instance, um, the FDA seems to have had this ongoing war on just to give an example on IV vitamin C and to me, that looks like you know why why would why would you why would you spend resources and time and and effort going after something that seems so benign, um, if not because you know because you want to shoot it down for some reason. Yeah. So well, that's a little bit of a different connection than than simply the regulatory connection. So yeah. I, I think. You know, what you're talking about also goes into like advisory board issues. So the the idea that what has happened to the FDA is, I mean, essentially the FDA is not very expert on what they oversee. Mm-hmm. So they rely heavily on people out in the industry for, you know, in many phases to advise them or to, you know, set the standard, I guess, if you will, or the science science standard. And FDA is supposed to evaluate it and they're supposed to be doing their own testing and, and uh, you know, making decisions. Is this really something? But, you know, a, as a scientific organization, they, they, you know, just aren't quite that good. Um, so they rely heavily on people from industry you know, to, to, for guidance. The unfortunate thing about it is, of course, when you do that, um, it's who are you leaning to mm-hmm. is, 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 is the important thing. So if you're not giving a broad base, uh, uh, getting a broad base of advice, uh, then you're going to, of course, have skewed results. Um, and that's certainly the case in advice reports. And I think that's happened, in, you know, with the COVID vaccines. Advisory, I mean, we don't know who were on the advisory boards. My guess is they were jam-packed with um, 
pro-vaccine, you know, get these things out advisory. Mm -hmm. So that's not public information? Um, it sometimes is. It's up to the it's up to the FDA and the office. Uh. So uh, they they sometimes have closed advisory boards. Um, uh. You know, only the company and the advisory committee and the FDA are involved. Sometimes they have public, uh, but it's it's entirely the call of the FDA whether or not they have a public public hearing on an advisory board. So sometimes you don't even know who's on the advisory panel. Um, it can be. Anywhere from two, three, up to ten people, even more. You don't know the number. You don't know their. And they could be. They could be. They could be people from Moderna or Pfizer. Uh, they, or is that too that, much of a conflict? There would that be too well? Yeah, technically that. Is. I, I I have never seen people being pulled from you know that okay. directly something like that. But that doesn't mean that they don't pull from a pool of people where that have close connections to people with Moderna and Pfizer. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they may not have the actual people who are employed by Moderna and Pfizer, but sometimes they use consultants um, who have extensive contracts with these companies, with, with the pharmaceutical companies. Um, and so the consultant, you know, is acting as almost an agent for the, so the consultant has mm -hmm. a conflict of interest. They're, you know, working for the company, and then they're supposed to be on the advisory panel. So, um, and that's quite common in, in the industry. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, you know, the, the process really needs to be much more open, I think. Um, you know, pe people, it ha particularly to scientific scrutiny, the, the whole idea. When I when I see what's happening with these the vaccines, um, clearly the advisory panel I think went in with blinders on the eyes. Um, you know, they didn't ask all of the questions that needed to be asked. I don't think, uh, and particularly in terms of safety and what studies were done or not done and why were they not done type of thing. Uh, it, it, I, I don't know. I've not ever seen any transcripts out of the advisory panel. So I don't know what was asked and what was not, but you know, it, it seems like a very narrow Focus sort of uh, advisory panel just to get the thing out. Yeah, and um, do you, do you get the feeling when I look at the just the news coverage and what's happening with the AstraZeneca vaccine versus Moderna and Pfizer? Does it look to you as if there's there's bias going on at the regulatory level, favoring some vaccines over others? Yeah, I think so, and I think that happens um, not only with vaccines but with you know, uh, therapeutics as well. Um, the advisory panel gives a, the FDA does not have to listen to the advisory panel. So the advisory panel will, you know, give a recommendation, kind of thumbs up or thumbs down. The FDA does not have to listen to that. Uh, the FDA can make its own decision. They most of the time listen to the advisory panel, but sometimes they don't. So, it, you know, it's, it's very situational. Um, the thing that has struck me about these vaccines, I don't know if you saw on AIER, they published what I call the, the, the Fauci emails. Um, they oh, no, the, I, haven't, I haven't seen that. They, they did a freedom of information thing where they were able to obtain a whole series of emails from wow. Fauci from, from early of last year, from I think it was starting in January uh, through, through March. Um, they got about two months worth of emails and going back and forth about, um, you know, 
what are, what are we going to do type of thing. And the, the, it's, it's painful to read because <laughs> having, I mean, it, having experienced these various organizations, I mean, this was all of the people from places that I described before, you know, BARDA and CDC and um, FDA and, and DHHS and NAID and all of these, you know, people going back and forth on, on emails. Um, nobody really knowing quite what's going on. Uh, but the one thing that came out very early in those emails, I mean, back in early February, was a lobby by pharmacy or vaccine companies for vaccine funds. And get this, the number of 700 million doses came up almost instantly. Before huh. there was ever a vaccine, they are already talking about vaccinating the population twice. Everybody in the U.S. Wow. had to get two shots. And this was February of 2020. Pandemic, wow. had, pandemic had not even been declared yet. And in those emails, and nobody was questioning this. The only question that I could find about it was somebody asked the question because uh, Johnson & Johnson was trying to get money, the vaccine to that. And one person asked, why, why should we be, you know, funding Johnson & Johnson with taxpayer money? They're a big company. <laughs> that, was, that was like the only question that was asked. But nobody oh. was questioning, the, you know, why do we need to vaccinate every citizen two times? Um, you know, nobody asked that. Nobody, nobody I, I couldn't find it. I mean, it's, it's hard to dig information out of these things. But that's that astonishing. Was, that was the thing that really jumped out, aside from the kind of the confusion and the, you know, the inept policy play that was going on. The thing that really stuck out was this lobbying for vaccine money um, that came out early. And I mean, this is supposedly before anybody has a vaccine, but yet. Right. You know, Let alone knows a who should be vaccinated and b whether a booster is needed or not. That's right. That's right. I mean, no clinical <laughs> trial has been performed yet. So, I mean, what, where I is mean, this idea? And and that's something I, I feel like we've talked about this before, but I feel like this is something that really should give everyone pause. The whole idea that they are they are hell bent on getting everyone vaccinated and especially in, in a situation where it's really clear now that there are specific groups of people who are susceptible to COVID-19. And that children are not, you know, young people are not healthy. Young, even really, I mean, even healthy older people are not. Healthy people in their in their eighties, if they don't have a comorbidity, are probably not super susceptible to it. And yet, there's this push. I mean, that should not make sense. That should be sending alarm bells to to people, you know, even if if they have no skepticism at all about vaccines. And yet, it's just seems to be kind of accepted. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree completely. It, you know, it's it's tough to talk about these things because you know, saying what we say, people think, oh, you're anti-vaxxer. And, right. You know, we talked about this before. You know, yeah. I, I'm not anti-vaxxer. I'm a pragmatic vaxxer. I mean, you have to you have to look at what you're using and and what is it what is it doing. Um, but yeah. yeah, the, the, the blinders. So when I, when I saw that in those Fauci emails, you know, before the, who ever declared a pandemic. Um, and at that time I knew that, you know, this, this virus was going around already was well, 
spread around the world. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the WHO was about three months late in declaring a pandemic. I mean, the pandemic didn't start in March. You know, that's when the WHO declared it. But it, the pandemic was going long before March. Um, there, there was a study done by some Italian researchers that, I, that I've seen where they went back and they checked some retained serum samples in Italy, in the northern towns. And they found the virus back in September. Yeah, yeah. I think there were some other countries that that found found had similar findings. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, you know, th this thing was going long before we saw the pictures from Wuhan of them, you know, pounding people into their apartments. I mean, that was that was dramatic television set out by the right Chinese or the world. or the people falling over just all of a sudden falling over in the what happened to that? What happened to the because that's not that's not something we ever saw here in the U.S. People just standing there and suddenly toppling over i mean it just in hindsight that just looks fake that just looks like complete yeah when when we when we got in here in japan we we saw that on the, on the news media back in january i mean the, you know these hyped images and i i i my first response was gut splitting laughter um because i thought <laughs> you know this this is this is like this is better than you know melodramatic daytime television. Um, Ch China, what people have to understand is China just doesn't let things out, right? They're, they are so controlling on right. any message that goes right. out and coming in to their country. Yeah. Why would they show kind of this chaotic situation of people screaming and yelling and authorities pounding them into their, their apartments? They, I, you know, I, I believe, ooh, are you okay? Oh, I just, yeah, I just, I lost you for a second there. I think it's, I think it's all right. I just, you froze up for a second. Yeah, I got the message again. I'm, so yeah, if no, I get the message, I'll kind of, I'll kind of stop off. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was dramatic television or how newsreel or however you want to do it, but yeah. uh, to totally, totally fake. The, the, the temporary, the hospitals that you saw and establishing up, you know, in Wuhan, they were like suddenly building all these hospitals. Well, those came down two months later. I mean, you know, they never used them. <laughs> a few people went in, but like, like the ones, like the like the um, well, they weren't hospitals, but like the structures they put up in New York City, right? Right. That never got used. But you know, I mean, at that time in January, I mean, here in Japan, I mean, people were sick all over the place. So, so you know, <laughs> I figured out, well, you know, it's 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 out there already, well out there. Um, you know, and the timing of the the Chinese thing was coincidental, almost to the day of you know the, the ending of the um, impe impeachment thing with with oh, Trump, right, right, right. So when that kind of finished, um, when the Senate said enough, time um, for a new news cycle. That yeah, 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 yeah. And that's I I think I think it was targeted, you know, com that that was completely targeted as an anti-Trump type of thing, but. Um, <laughs> So what, what do you think? So one of the other things that happened early on was the CDC really screwed up testing in this country. I mean, South Korea, you know, got tests out very quickly, tests that worked, got them, got them rolling. Um, the CDC had a monopoly on testing. There were actually some independent labs, um, at least here on the West Coast, who created some tests were not allowed to use them. Um, I think I think they could use them internally, but they were not allowed to let anybody else use them. The CDC had this this 
stranglehold on testing and screwed it up. Given everything you know about the CDC and government bureaucracy, what do you think happened there? Was that an, an innocent screw up? Well, it depends. <laughs> innocent is kind of, I think, maybe uh, hoobity <laughs> would be the word. I, I, I think the CDC, the CDC has kind of a control mentality and, you know, it's dangerous to have the CDC with a control mentality because um, they oftentimes really don't know what they're doing. And I think that was a perfect example. Um, you know, they, they really didn't, if you have a strong test and you really think it should be out there, you would get it out there. So I think within the organization itself, there was probably not a lot of agreement on whether this thing was working or not or working correctly or could be put out there. Um, so that, that's kind of my opinion. Uh, but it's not only the CDC. I mean, the FDA also bungled things by putting lower standards on, you know, the on the test kits. Um, right, right. I mean, it, it, there was, it, it's kind of like the vaccine thing. Um, from a very early stage on, it seemed like there was this concerted push for mass testing, uh, which is ridiculous. Um, you know, it, it, so... Everybody has to be vaccinated twice and everybody's got to be tested. Well, that's when are you going to stop that? Because the test is only a snapshot in time. So what are you going to do? You're going to test everybody every day for the rest of their life. I mean, with right. a test that's, that's unreliable. I mean, uh, what it's, it's like who had the brain cell in the government on those particular days. I think the brain cell was on vacation or something. It, it just is amazing how these things just go. Boom. But if you've worked with, you know, <laughs> these organizations that that's what tends to happen is there's really, you know, and it, the, one of the big problems is of course, that the, the top level is, is, is completely political. So right. all of, all of the, all of the leaders of the CDC, the FDA, the, you know, uh, they're all political appointees um, and they're going to follow whatever, the push is in, you know, the political wind, essentially coming out of the White House. So, um, right, and right. if there's so even if someone down at a lower level is doing good work, even if they had produced a great test, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't that doesn't right. mean it's going to, yeah. And I, I, you know, I would suspect that there were plenty of people in the CDC who, you know, are competent scientists who who knew who could do that. And um, but you know, you're fighting a, a, a you know bureaucratic upswell. Um, you know, if if what you have isn't what's in the favored bureaucratic upswell, you you know you're going to get swamped out. So right. and that's why many of the good people leave. Um, yeah. You know, so it, it it's it's truly a problem. The, the CDC should not be in that business. Um, I I I am a firm believer that you know the CDC does a pretty good job. If you go to their website, you can uh, you know they collect infectious disease information, at least they used to do a good job of that. 2020 yeah. has been another, we'll get into that in a minute. Yeah. But, um, you know, and then they, every year they put out reports, they analyze the data, you know, and you can see the trends and um, they're, they're pretty good sometimes, you know, in, in trying to present data on where the health trends are going in uh, American society. I mean, they've been putting out alerts on obesity, uh, 
in American society for years. Uh, you know, hey, we're you know we're seeing the data going towards you know the deep end here uh, in American society. More more and more obesity every every year. Uh, more problems from obesity. Um, so you know they they do some some good things when they do that kind of work, and that's really what they they should be doing. Uh, but when it comes to actively managing you know public health and infectious disease, they, they really need to kind of back off out of that. Um, and unfortunately, the public health sector in the U.S. particularly, uh, you know, 50 years ago, it was a completely different system. And uh, I don't know if you remember when you were a kid, but public health was, you know, it was very localized. They had doctors, um, they had nurses, they would come around to schools, you know, during seasonal virus, the, the virus seasons, um, you know, they would give talks to the kids, you know, you know, make sure you wash your hands, you know, use a handkerchief. And, you know, um, if you needed vaccines, uh, they, they would, you could go to the public health department and get a vac vaccination. Um, you know, they didn't push it on people, but they informed. Um, it, over the years, it has become um, a regulatory agency. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they now regulate restaurants. You know, you have to get licensed by your local public health in order to work at a restaurant. I, I worked at a restaurant when I was in college. You know, I had to go there, take a test, and um, it doesn't prevent anything. Um, no, no. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, it's, it's a it became a regulatory body. And, yeah. that, and it, so it, the, the public health sector has gone into from actually promoting public health to just regulating whatever. And yeah, and it's and it's um, you know where I, I'm in California, and um, just recently at, at the end of 2019, in fact, they they amended California law basically to give a California Health Department and I believe the county health departments as well essentially the power to do anything in the event of a public health emergency, and so I mean it's we've really gotten to the point where. It's it's this sort of it's I mean it's it's a totalitarian regime through the public health infrastructure and um, yeah it hadn't it hadn't occurred to me that you know it, it hasn't always been this way it's it wasn't really there there was a time when public health really was about information and and getting people resources that they needed and that kind of thing and it's really what do you think changed it? Well, I think. Uh, I can't point specifically, but um, I, I think that a lot of it, a lot of what we're seeing goes back to, I, I think, into the 80s, actually during the Reagan administration, because mm -hmm. at that time there was quite a focus on a lot of defunding out of uh, out of various areas of public public life, and I think public health took a hit at that time. Mm -hmm. um, I think it it's you know some of it had started before that, but um, I think there's been always this gradual erosion, and I think maybe that was took took kind of the bigger hit at, at back in the eighties and since that time it's just never recovered um, i mean that's that's my opinion i'm not yeah. that that big into that's just kind of an observation that i've made and i I know that you know other areas took hits you know as well back in the eighties. Uh, you know, that haven't really recovered out of that. And I think it's also accounted for a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the, the 
money issue in science um, has become kind of, it, it's completely changed since when I was in graduate school. Um, first of all, the, the, the money that's out there now with, you know, in funding scientists, it's certainly a lot more than when I was in graduate school. I mean, I was the epitome of a starving graduate student. Um, I, I made, as a teaching assistant, um, at that in the 80s, uh, I was getting about $12,000 a year um, to, to teach laboratory classes. You know, I had to live off of that. Wow. Um, my, my last year, I got a um, fellowship, so kind of an honorary thing. And that was that was like rolling in the money, $15,000 a year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, that translates, I did the calculation based upon the, the, the index of inflation. That translates to about $20,000, $24,000 in today's money. Jeez. So that's, that's wow. poverty line stuff, right? And yeah. Yeah. So, but that's different now. Um, you know, you, you, government sourcing is still there, but there is now this a huge amount of philanthropic and corporate funding that goes into scientific research. And I think we're seeing the, you know, the culmination of that in uh, many of the events of 2020 in that, first of all, scientists are having trouble getting their voices out because they are under the mantra of, well, you can't say anything against, you know, our funding source. Mm -hmm. uh, funding, if the funding sources, sources the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you, you definitely can't say anything. Uh, if your funding source is Pfizer, you know, <laughs> Johnson right. Johnson, uh, you know, the, this this whole source of uh, livelihood now for for science has really become intertwined into you know into industry and and private thinking, and that is you know become I think a big big dangerous point. So, and it's and in a very kind of centralized way it seems because we're not it doesn't seem like it's you know, a whole lot of different corporations with different views on what should be funded. It seems to be this monolithic viewpoint that might involve, am I characterizing that? I, th I think maybe you're, I think maybe you're right. I mean, I'm not, haven't been close enough to it for many years to, to know, you know, have the real insight, but from what I see peripherally, I mean, if you just take a look at how public health officials have, dealt with 2020 there seems to be you know from these core schools uh, of public health you know the harvard th chan's school of public health and uh, john hopkins mm -hmm. um you know there's a there's a very few number of these public health schools and they all seem to be singing the same tune uh and, and they have this huge network um so the it's there is a lockout of you know opposing views because there's a stranglehold coming from a very few places. You know whether there's intent behind that, I don't know, but it, right, it's right. it's happened. I mean, it's the result is there, um, and, and it it also makes me wonder. You know, the science education uh, is something that I, I I wonder how many people in public health actually really understand the difference between a virus and, and a bacteria. <laughs> because sometimes they talk about things like, you know, completely ignoring. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see a lot of scientific knowledge there at all. Um, mm -hmm. 
Well, as you said, it's, I think it's been transformed from something that maybe was more grounded in science and into a, a political and a control entity. It's, it's really more, when, when I think about public health in this country, now I think about power and control. I don't, I don't think about, you know, an entity that's going that's here to help people. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's certainly the case. And, you know, and unfortunately, the other, the, other, the other end of the spectrum is that science has become very myopic. And scientists have become very myopic. And it's, it, it's, this was even kind of evident when I was in graduate school. I mean, everybody kind of went into a specialty, mm-hmm. right? And it's, yeah. you had to go this direction. You had to, you know, it, scientists have, have, have been operating with blinders on. Um, I chose a path of expansion and I was very, very, you know, an unusual person in my career um, to go into the path of expansion of, of the many people that I used to go to school with. I probably was the one who went out, you know, into much farther realms than, than anybody else. Um, but it was, there was a lot of pressure on me when I was in graduate school to do the traditional thing, which is, you know, after getting a PhD, go become a postdoc, spend a couple more years in a laboratory getting underpaid, and then try to get, uh, you know, into a university somewhere, uh, drum up grant money and and start a research group um, focused on a very narrow area of research. And I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to broaden my experience, not not narrow it in. Um, so when this, I so go ahead, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say also when when I was in graduate school, I had an opportunity at that time. Um, there was through. Uh, the American Association for Advancement of Science, they were giving science fellowships for uh, spending time in Washington, D.C. as congressional aid or senatorial aides. So you you could actually... Uh, You're freezing up again. You just froze up again for a second. (laughs) Okay, you're back, you're back. Okay, so you could get... a. I got this mess. I just got the message again. <laughs> okay. Um, Is it okay? I think you're good. I think you're good. Okay. So you get these fellowships and you could go, you know, work as a Senate staffer or a congressional aid staffer um, dealing with science and science policy and so forth. And I wanted to do that actually in grad school. I figured one, it was like a six month deal type of thing. Um, and so I figured six months off, from doing my graduate work was not going to be that big of a deal. Uh, you know, the, the department where I went to w- didn't like that idea at all. Uh, they, they dissuade, they couldn't say no, but they dissuaded me out of it uh, hmm. saying, well, we don't know if, you know, there'll be a place for you, if you when you're done with that type of thing. Right. Um, and, you know, that's a problem because we need, I mean, nobody in, nobody in Washington, D.C. really has a understanding. I mean, Fauci, Fauci was once trained in science and how good it can be actually be debatable if you, depending on who you're talking to. I, I can't make that comment. I have dealt with him um, and he is a bureaucratic politician. And so to actually have working scientists without an agenda, um, working in government, you know, advising on policies are very rare, rare event. Um, I think the only smart thing that Trump ever did was bring in Dr. Atlas, 
um, mm-hmm. and to get kind of a fresh, fresh view. I think that was <laughs> in his four years. But that's got to be. I mean, I, w- I would think on any kind on any kind of dependable basis, it has to be impossible because in order to get to that position, in order to to get to a high level, you don't get that. You don't get there by you know speaking scientific truths. You get there by making a lot of other politicians happy and and bolstering their power and it's just a different game i mean i don't think you can ever get to to that kind of position you know playing the game of honest science yeah unfortunately that's that's probably a pretty accurate uh, assessment um and i think you know we've seen that clearly in 2020 uh that you know if you're supposed to be the you know, the czar of, of, uh, you know, health medicine or whatever in the U S you know, you don't get up there and spew the things that Fauci's doing. Um, you know, he, he's, I mean, it, it goes beyond confusion. I mean, so Fauci is spewing misinformation. Um, and you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's not the role, I mean, but that is the role that becomes assumed because that's the politically, you know, that's where his political life is. Now. Right. That's uh, the, the people who are keeping him in power want him to, to say that. Exactly. I wanted to get back to something else that you were talking about, though. The whole, the the scientists becoming myopic and the whole, the fields becoming myopic. I think in, certainly in the generation that's coming up and probably a little bit in my generation too, we've kind of gotten the message that because because human information has grown at such a fast pace, there's so much information out there, there's so much new knowledge, you know, everyone can't be a generalist. You can't, um, you really, if you're going to be successful, you really have to focus in on a specific thing. And that's kind of the only path to success. But you didn't, it sounds like you didn't take that path. And I think there's a tremendous cost to that too, because it just seems very disempowering if, you know, to have, if so many people build their lives in such a narrow way that they can really only function in this very narrow area, this very narrow field, um, they then become very dependent. You know, it's, it's, it seems like it would be, it's a lot harder to be independent if you're, if your capacity to, to work and to function is, is very narrow. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Oh yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, as one might tell, if you could interview people who have worked with me, um, I'm, I'm not a quiescent person or acquiescent person. Uh, if I, if I see something that, you know, I don't agree with, uh, you know, I'm, no matter where I'm working to my, I was a pain in the butt to my superiors um, because I would say, no, no, this isn't right. And uh, most of the time in industry or any place, they don't like to hear that. So, um, but I was never afraid, you know, I figured, well, what's the worst? I make myself a pain in the butt for long enough. They fire me. Well, okay, I'll go on and do something else. I was never afraid of that option. I, I always had the confidence that I could go out and, do something else. Um, so, but yeah, exactly what you said. If, if you're kind of, if you're only can do this one thing and you know, the company you're working for is doing this one thing uh, and you know, you speak out and the company says, bye-bye. Well, what are you going to do? Um, you know, th- that is, 
that does put a heavy burden on people. <clears throat> you know, I also chose the route of not having a family. I, I have no children. So I, you know, I, and I did that out of a number of personal reasons. Um, but, you know, one of them was simply that I wanted to be able to be very independent in terms of how my life went. And if you, you know, if you start to have children, as you know, um, you know, your responsibility funnel becomes very, very narrow. Yeah, it's, and, it's a lot harder to pick up and just, you know, switch yeah, gears. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, knowing the kind of person I was, which is argumentative, um, I, you know, I, I always figured my job was on the line. <laughs> you know, I, I made no, I made no, no qualms about it. Um, but and particularly in you know in in QA, uh, it was kind of a perfect job for me to wait because I got to argue. Um, but um, yeah, you you have if you have the confidence and the availability to know that there's always something else that you can do, mm-hmm. then that's going to affect how you how you do things. Um, you know, and a lot of that in 2020 is you know is what we see. I, I get a lot of support from the articles I've written from scientists and professionals and medical doctors. Um, and, you know, they kind of see, have seen me as, you know, a voice uh, because they can't always speak out. Right. Um, they, they, are, they, are under the, they are under the threat of, uh, I know people who work for hospitals um, who can't even do their normal activities. Um, the hospital says, no, you can't do this. Uh, we're not going to let you do that because of COVID. Uh, right. they're, they're like under quarantine in their job. So Jeez. their job is a quarantine. Uh, you know, and th- this, is, this is happening. So um, what, do you, what do you choose? You choose your job or not working. Right, right. Yeah, it, no, there, it, there must be a whole population of disaffected, of, of people in that industry right now who are just going nuts or just, you know, becoming very frustrated. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that's the case. Um, and if it, you know, if, if there's anything that positive that comes out of this, I, I, I would like to see, I don't know if explosion is the, is the right word, but I would like to see kind of a, a breaking apart and tearing down of how we have tended to structure from the bottom up, I mean, science education in this country, um, all the way through how we conduct science and medicine, um, you know, th- throughout throughout the world, really. I mean, it's gotten into a situation whereby it's a domino effect. I mean, once a domino falls, everything, as we've seen in 2020, uh, and there's, you know, no way to get, get back into things. So, and, well, I think, I, I think that is coming. Um, you know, here, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're, you've heard about, you know, what's going on at the universities here. And I feel like 2020 has been a, just sort of tipped over or been a big push against a system that was crumbling anyway. I mean, the liberal arts education anyway in the U.S. has just become, you know, a joke in many ways. And I know there are places where you can still get a, a solid science education, but to have it, you know, connected to that, to, to a system that's really, that's overpriced, that's bloated and filled with, you know, political nonsense. Um, 
I do think that this is, I do think that there's going to be some kind of major shift in education and hopefully in, in medicine too, and in, in how, how education happens and then how services are delivered because they're both such broken systems. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they, they all feed into each other. Um, mm-hmm. So, so you can't, you can't correct one without correcting the other. Um, yeah. Or any yeah. Of I, I wanted to get back to. I want to make sure that we don't that we don't miss out on any of your uh, the experiences that you had with the FDA and the CDC. I wanted to get back to the um, when you were doing the audit of the CDC. Was there ever a resolution? So, so you went in there, you found out that they they essentially didn't know what validation was. Um, was there ever a, revo- a resolution to that? I I don't know. I, I mean, the reason for that is because I went in relatively late um, in at that point in my job. Um, I left the job after, not too long after that and went into consulting. Um, and and <laughs> actually, I, I I was asked to leave my my job and I went. Into See, you weren't so, wrong to suspect. Um, <laughs> so I mean I, I I kind of knew it was it was coming and uh, it, it's a little the company's not there anymore and it came down to you know uh, an imposition being placed on by the government that I refused to go along with. So ah, I, I can you that say what that so was, I was, can you say what that imposition was? I, I think so. I don't think there's any. So they're not going to fire you now. Yeah, and you know. I'm in Japan, so. Um, but at that time, with the biodefense initiative, so you know, we were a private company try, trying to manufacture two vaccines to go into the stockpile. Nothing secretive about this, right? I mean, both of these things were known entities. Um, there was no secret information involved. Nothing like this. Well, according to the way the government had set things up, any defense this was considered biodefense. So any defense contract required that you had to sign over this release of the government could go in and check all of your personal information. Oh, they, geez. Could to, they could go to your banks, check your bank accounts, monitor your bank accounts, all this. And I said, no, I'm not going to sign that. Um, this is not a good, this is not a defense contract. Yeah, it was, a, it was a award from the government to develop the vaccines, but there was nothing, you know, this wasn't some high tech you know, neutron bomb type thing. Right. They weren't handing you national secrets to work with. Yeah. No, this was, this was, this was already public. You know, other companies had been working on these things. This is, this was nothing, nothing new. And I, I I could, I would have had trouble even if it had been something relatively top secret, although I would have understood the rationale for it. But I, you know, I, the rationale for this with this company was, you know, I, and the the other aspect of it was that you know I was holding to the standards um, of validation, which were uh, because of trying to accelerate things, the company was trying to skirt around those standards. Mm. So I, uh, I, it was a combination of things that I think those two two actually were the were the things that kind of <laughs> led to my demise. But right. I was never actually told. I, I never got a formal you know, in, in the, that here's the problem. So, uh, but I, that was the only two, there were only two things that I could, I could come up with, but. Right. Uh, but it's worrying to think, you know, there's, 
maybe after this year, this that's that's not so this past year, it's not this isn't so true anymore. But I think for a lot of people, you know, they look up to the CDC and the FDA as you know, as as experts that they can rely on or as a as a process, as part of a process that ensures quality, that ensures um, you know, some standard. And yet when you actually poke inside there and you look and see what they're doing, it, it seems to be just the opposite of that. And so what what should people think about, let's say the CDC, what what should people know about what it actually does outside of the realm of providing data, you know, which, you know, yeah, it, they, they actually, I think, do kind of a decent job of, of that until they start changing definitions and, and all the stuff they've done this past year. But what what would you like people to know about the work the CDC or what, what it actually produces in the world? Just from Ooh. what you've seen, I know you're not like an expert on the whole on the whole thing, but just based on your experience, yeah. what would you? Well, you know, I, I, to me, I, I put CDC in the classification as a resource. Um, you know, the one probably thing that the CDC can do is communicate effectively with other CDCs, if you will, from you know, other countries around the world. So, uh, you know, there is, or at least theoretically, there should be sort of this advanced communication mode um, in terms of being able to see what's going on. You know. uh, Europe, European CDC does this. If you read the EU CDC bulletins, um, each week, you know, they provide not only, I mean, they're, attention focus was not only on uh, coronavirus, but they talked about other, you know, other viral entities, you know, Ebola, Marburg, uh, what was happening in various parts of the world with these things. And they were, you know, they were much more coordinated. Um, and, you know, I view that, you know, that's the CDC's role. They are, uh, they are a communicative, you know, kind of a, kind of a central clearinghouse, if you will of information, they should be a, a place that has established uh, very quick and efficient communication with other places around the world. So, you know, that you can get an alert at what's happening. Uh, you know, something is happening. We need to know about this, da, 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 da. what can we do? As terms of a scientific source, um, it doesn't mean they don't have, you know, good scientists in there, but uh, I think everything that in terms of being a scientific source, it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, they just don't, I, I don't think they match, you know, the capabilities of, you know, scientific labs in academia or in, or in industry and in being able to uh, produce, you know, a good science on a, you know, a quick turnaround basis. It just doesn't, and it, again, it may not necessarily be a lack of scientific knowledge can be a combination of, you know, bureaucratic uh, impedance and you know, sometimes a lack of knowledge. Um, so you, you just have to take, it's like the warning I put on my Facebook. I said, don't, you know, just don't trust the CDC on these things. Uh, and I think, you know, their example of when they said, this is how you make a cloth mask. Um, even the European CDC when the, when the U.S. CDC said that, the European CDC came out with one of their bullets and said, 
that's nuts. Essentially, he said, that's nuts. What is, you know, what is going on here? They, and they cited all the data that shows cloth masks don't do anything. Wow. <laughs> so another okay. CDC went back and said, what are you doing, U- U.S. CDC? Um, so, yeah, as a scientific source, I, I, I have my reservations. Um, and, you know, sort of the same with the FDA. Um, the, they, they really are out of their realm, I think. Um, and again, a lot of it has to do simply with government. I mean, the way our government functions, it has a, it's a stifler. It's not a promoter. So um, mm-hmm. I think that's a big, a big problem. One final question. Um, yeah. You mentioned that you had dealt with Fauci before. Can you talk about that at all? Uh, Delta is not maybe the right word. I think he, I, he was in a, a couple of the, the meetings that we had BARDA. I mean, um, there's so many figures that come and go in all of these things. I mean, that was, was in one of those meetings that I met Donald Henderson. Um, so I can't say too much other than beyond. I don't didn't necessarily have a very good impression. Um, he, I, he didn't offer a whole lot. Um, I guess that's me. I, I didn't, you know, interact with him close enough to, to know, I, I, and I know his background. Um, and I know that he's not, you know, an unintelligent man, but he, you know, he certain. If you sit, if sitting in a meeting with him, I, you know, I, I I saw you know a bureaucratic individual, a, a politician, not 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 a scientist. So I guess that's probably the best way I can describe it. Is that's how that's the impression that I have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's other anecdotal things. You know, people who have worked more closely with him, he doesn't. People who have worked closely with him, he's kind of don't. I don't know. He hasn't really garnered a lot of respect from. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do think. I, I mean, sort of the the picture that you're painting is is a little bit of sort of this this clash between, which isn't surprising, but clash between the world of politics and the world of science. And and I think at some point, if you're, it sounds like if you're in that world, if if you're going to be working within the regulatory part of that world you got to pick sides. It's like, which one are you, are you going to be devoted to the science or are you going to play the game of politics? And yeah, I, I mean, the longer you, longer you go into the politics side, I mean, the, the less you go out to the science side. So, and you start to think like a politician, not like a scientist. So yeah. um, that, that and, and you hit upon a point that I think is, is really important as well. And has been quite evident in 2020. And that is in terms of the myopic science, when you are establishing policy, when things become more myopic, it is imperative that you get a broader base of people in on, you know, input. Mm-hmm. If you, yeah. you know, because it becomes myopic, you yeah. can't, you don't have two or three people in the room have this broad base of, you know, understanding of, of being able to see, you know, the big picture. So you have to, you have to build the big picture and you can only build the big picture by, bringing in a number of people with various parts of it. So you have to, you have to grow your advisory council, if you will. 
Yeah. It's been quite the opposite in 2020. It gets focused in with just the computer modelers and, yeah. you know, there, yeah. there's, there's no, no other, you know, people just aren't being listened to. Um, yeah. from all, all well, I think there's also there's also a danger with the whole myopic trend that, you know, everyone has their little area that maybe they're an expert in or maybe they're, you know, competent in. But there's this this fear of stepping outside of that. There's there's like this this belief that, oh, well, you know, I'm not an expert in that particular strain of chemistry. And so I'm not going to even think about it or comment on it. And I just, I just feel like that's a, that's a danger. I think people have to be able to have some capacity for general thought and for, for being able to evaluate the world as a generalist or, you know, there are people out there who will, who will use this kind of this, I don't know, tyranny of, of specialization to pound the rest of us over the head and say, well, you're not a specialist in that. So you can't possibly have, you know, you're not a specialist in, in viruses. And so you can't possibly have an opinion about the lockdowns kind of thing. Um, yeah. And I, I get that. Um, you know, some it's relatively rare, but you know, some of the responses I get from my articles, you know, are, you know, Hey, you're a chemist. Um, mm. you know, what do you know about infectious disease? Well, you know, I studied a lot. And if you look behind me. <laughs> you, will, you will see several, a whole layer of books on immunology, biochemistry, right. um, you know, viruses, uh, virus, you know, testing, vaccines. I, I, you know, it doesn't mean I don't have hands-on bench experience. For sure, I'm always clear about that. I, you know, I didn't do that. But as a scientist, one of the things you learn as a scientist, or at least used to learn, is how to evaluate things. You know, you you have, there is a, a mindset. I'm learning to be able to look at things and understand what you're dealing with. Um, you know, immunology and viruses is chemistry. The terminology they use is different, but the chemistry is the same as what I studied. Uh, from organic chemistry. So it's organic chemistry with just larger molecules. And so, yeah, I, I understand what, what's, what's going on. Um, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily have to be the bench person working in some university uh, to, to see what's going on and to see, apply it to the big picture. Um, And, and, and that, so that's also, that argument is used to shoot down people as well. It's like, oh, you don't, you don't have an opinion because you aren't, you know, you don't work for, um, you know, uh, Harvard, you know, medical school. So what do you know about this? Right. Um, And then, and then when, when, and then when the immunologist from Harvard does come, does come and speak out, they get canceled because that's, yeah you know, that's, that's the only weapon they have, they have left to them. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a really, really bad situation, but hopefully, you know, I've seen, you know, more, more people starting to break out um, and and take the chance. And and the the more that happens, you know, the more it's going to be hard, harder to, to hide the truth. And um, I hope so. I, I, I think so. And I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, You're welcome. We're going to have to do this again sometime, but um, but yeah, thank you. Yeah.